Um, we're going to be studying, if you have Grudem's Systematic Theology, we're in chapter 30, The Work of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to try not to write on the board much because, as you can see, my handwriting is atrocious. But uh, hopefully we'll just be talking, going through some scriptures, and everything should work out fine. Uh, the first question that I have to ask, and it's kind of a rhetorical question, is what does the Holy Spirit do in the life of a Christian? What does he actually do? Do we, do we know? Have you guys looked at the Holy Spirit? Have you studied the Holy Spirit? Have you felt the Holy Spirit working in your life? Do you have tangible evidence that the Spirit is alive and working in you? Does the Spirit do uh, miraculous actions at the beck and call of any Christian that asks, uh, like many Protestants believe today, or does the Spirit keep reserved and work within the uh, intellect only, as some of our more conservative denominations like to think? If you could turn to uh, John chapter 6, or 16, excuse me, verses 5 through 15, John 16. Would anybody like to read John 16, verses 5 through 15? You want to read it? Okay, Jonathan's going to read for us. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Now if you also want to turn to John 14, verses 26, I'll read that. And we're, we're just kind of giving a scriptural basis for what the Bible says the work of the Spirit is. In John chapter 14, verse 26, it says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, as I said, the title of this little section is going to be The Activity and Work of the Holy Spirit. But the important thing is the subtitle. Uh, is what are the distinctive activities of the Holy Spirit throughout the church. So what we need to understand is, what, why is it that the Holy Spirit is more of a doctrinal understanding uh, and less of an actual person that is God, not only in our church, but many evangelical churches all over the world? Does anybody have any idea? Why is it that we look at as the Holy Spirit as just something we know, but not actually somebody, somebody that we can interact with? I think maybe just, I know for me personally, just growing up, uh, I was never aware of like personal pronouns that are in the scriptures that speak about, I just kind of, that just wasn't, you know, brought to my attention. Right. 
And, and a lot of people, if you listen to, especially a lot of cults, a lot of false religions, they're going to talk about the Holy Spirit as an id, as, a, as this and that, and they're not going to talk about him as a person. But the thing that we have to remember that the work of the Holy Spirit, it is mysterious, and it is filled with power. And he, and it's important to say he, because we have to remember that the Holy Spirit is a person of God, uh, and, and is God himself. Now, the thing is, do you know about the work of the Spirit? So that's what we're going to talk about today. Has anybody seen Francis Chan's book called The Forgotten God? Anybody seen that? You've seen it? I'm not a Francis Chan fan, and I'm not a big fan of his, but I think he had a really great thing in in the subtitle of the book. It was Reversing Our Tragic Neglect of the Holy Spirit. And that's kind of what's going on uh, as we think about it. The Holy Spirit is actually a neglected member of God. And we have to understand what it is and who he is and why he does what he does. Um, And that's what we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks. And as we've been going through systematic theology, Pastor Emilio has covered the Trinity, and, and in that you, you focus on more of who the Spirit is. But in this t- class, we're going to be talking about what the Spirit does. Okay, So that's what we're going to be focusing on. It is, it, it's important to me, and it's important to you guys, that I know we cover a lot of scriptures, because this is a, a Bible-based church. We like the scriptures. We go to the scriptures. Y'all don't want to hear a bunch of stories about this and that. So we're going to talk about the scriptures. So this is what Grudem has to say. Uh, This is his definition about the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, is to manifest the active presence of God in the world and especially in the church. Now, does anybody feel that that is an adequate definition, an inadequate definition? Is there something that you think needs to be added to that definition? You read it again one more time? Yeah. The work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the active presence of God in the world, and especially in the church. I like that. You like that? Does anybody else think that that's a good definition? Does anybody think have any problems with that definition? Can you say it again, John? Sure. The work work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the, the active presence of God in the world, and especially in the church. Well, I like the, the dual kind of nature there, through the world and especially through the church, so it reflects the common grace of God and the redemptive grace of God. Right. In one statement. Amen. I think it's, a, it's an adequate definition, but a little later on, I'm gonna, I think there's a piece that I think that you could add to it that I think might, might fill it out a little bit better, but we'll talk about that in a second. Grudem says, this definition indicates that the Holy Spirit is a member of the Trinity, whom the scripture most often often represents as being present to bless, to do God's work in the world. Now, I would agree that in in our time, in the church age today, the Holy Spirit is the person of the Trinity that is most present, most active in our lives, and he is here to do the work of God, and through him we can accomplish uh, whatever God has set out for us to do. But... Again, we'll talk about some of the issues that are, the, hopefully we'll talk about some of the issues that come up when people kind of take the spirit as uh, a power source or th- that he's a genie or things like that. Because that's not who the spirit is. Now, this, this definition does not say that he is here to manifest the static or non-working presence of God. We have to understand, y'all, y'all understand, I think all of y'all would agree, that, the, that God is a God of work and God is a God of action. We do not serve 
a dead and static God. We don't serve a, a God like the gods of the idols in the Old Testament that were made of wood and stone and you carved them out of the logs and they just sat there or Dagon who fell over in the temple and all of this stuff. No, we serve a living and active God. And that's a great and wonderful thing. Now, here's the, here's the part that I think that you might be able to just add to Grudem's definition a little bit. What was God's highest action or greatest accomplishment in the world today? What was God's greatest accomplishment? What did he do that, that was, that's more than just the spirit being manifest? Redemption, Redemption through, through Jesus. Jesus. I, think, I think the revelation of Jesus Christ should be added to the definition a little bit. Um, I would say uh, that it, it, it kind of seems a little bit undone to the definition that Grudem gave to not mention the work of Christ and what Christ came to do. And that's, that's all the part that I would add. I would say like the work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the active presence of God in the world and especially in the church in, and I would say something about Christ there. I would add to, to manifest the, the work of Christ or to boost Jesus Christ or to glorify Jesus Christ in the world. Because I think if you leave Christ out of the definition, um, you're kind of missing the, the whole point of the Bible. Um, one of the kicks that um, Pastor Emilio has been on, and I wholeheartedly agree with it, is that Jesus is the center of the Bible. I mean, he's from Genesis to Revelation. If, if you don't see Jesus in all of the books of the Bible, I think you're missing something great. And to have to have to not have Jesus is kind of to miss out on the definition there. So when we go to the Old Testament, God is present in a few primary ways. One of them is theophanies. Turn to uh, Exodus 34. Exodus 34. Exodus 34, 5. And if somebody could also, any, somebody want to volunteer to read the next passage beforehand, I'll have you turn to it there. If anybody wants to volunteer, Chris, could you turn to Exodus 24, 15 and 18? Does anybody want to read Exodus 34, verses 4 and 5? Go ahead, sir. Amen. And he hewed two tables of stone like unto the first. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went unto Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two stones, the two tables of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So Moses goes up as a theophany. And here's the thing. I really think that that's an amazing verse. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. That's how the NASB reads. The Lord descends in the cloud and is standing there. Now, that's a theophany. What's a theophany? Does anybody have a, an idea? A type. A type. It's also, uh, Chris? It's just when God makes a visible presence to people. A visible presence of God that he manifests to the people. Okay? So it, it's a type. It's a visible presence of God that he makes to his people. And so as in this theophany, God, he comes down in this cloud, and he's standing there, and he's talking with Moses as Moses proclaims the name of the Lord. Now, that passage has wonderful exegetical implications. There are stuff that you could pull out of that and preach for like two or three weeks. But, I mean, that's, that's a glorious passage. Uh, you got, Emilio's got me saying glorious. Sorry. He says that. Um, that's a wonderful passage, okay? But, I mean, that, it really is. So think about it. Just to stand there with God as you're talking, and you're, and you're talking with God as he's descended in a cloud of smoke. That's wonderful. That, but that's a theophany. But the next way that God has revealed himself is, is also in the glory of God in the Old Testament. Chris, would you read Exodus 24? 15 through 18. 
says that Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain. Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Here again, we've got a, an amazing thing that happens. Moses goes up to this mountain, and this cloud comes down, and it covers the mountain. And the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. And it says that he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. Now, it doesn't say that the Lord came down in the cloud or anything like that. But this, this, from the midst of this cloud, God is calling Moses. Okay, And then it says... Uh, uh, the, the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. I mean, you know, we all understand that the Shekinah glory of God is just a, it, it's something that if we were in its presence, it would just, it would dazzle us. It would, it would magnify, it would, uh, it would be magnificent. We couldn't stand up. We would all fall on our faces and just go flat down on our faces. But again, theophanies and the glory of God are two ways that God had manifest himself through the, in the spirit kind of sort of, in a sort of a way in the Old Testament. But when you get to the New Testament, um, you're going to see it's most seen, like I said, in the face of Jesus Christ. Does anybody have John 1, 1, 1 18 memorized? Anybody have, if you get, turn to John 1, 18. Other than Pastor Emilio and Pastor Chris. Does anybody want to read John 1? 18. Go ahead, sir. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bottom of No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. He has explained him. God has been explained to us and, and made known to us, as some translations say, in Jesus Christ. I mean, if you want to know who God is, if you want to know what God's like, and if you want to know what God has for you and what God's doing, you can actually look to Jesus Christ. You can read about him in the scriptures, and that will tell you. Now, if you were living at the time that Christ was here, Christ, you know, as you're Peter or you're Luke or you're uh, Paul or somebody who's talking to Christ, that was... That was even better. But again, you have to remember the first scripture that we read. He said that I have to go away. If y'all remember the, the first scripture that we read, Christ has to go away. Why? So the spirit would come. If the spirit comes, that's even better than having Christ walking around with us right now. And that, to me, is, is an amazing thing. I mean, imagine you've got, you're, you're eating with Jesus Christ, and that would be, an incredible experience. But John actually says that, through Jesus says through John, he's got to go away so the Spirit can come. And if the Spirit's going to, when the Spirit comes, he's going to tell you all that I've taught you and do all these things that bring to your remembrance, but it is better for you that I go away. That's an amazing statement. Now, in the church age, it is the Spirit that is the primary manifestation of God. Um, that's an amazing statement, too. And this is why uh, I started with the quote that we used when we started from John 16. So the spirit, is, the spirit is the person of God most prominently with us in the world today. Now, 
It is from the very beginning that we see the works of the Spirit in Scripture. Turn to Genesis 1. You might want to lick your finger because we're going to be flipping through a lot of Scriptures today. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. The text says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. From the very beginning, we see that God's Spirit has been active in the world. That God's Spirit was active in the creation of everything that is. Um, The Spirit was moving or hovering, and some translations say that it was brooding over all of creation. Now, the word for that, that's used for spirit here is a Greek word. Now, I'm going to try to write on the board, and if y'all can't read this, I will try to slow down and write better. Um, that's what they all say, John. <laughs> I'm telling you, my, it's, it's just terrible. Can y'all read that? That is the word. It's the word ruach. Okay? It's a Hebrew word. And the thing is, uh, it's like the Greek word... I forget, is it an E or a U? It's an E. Penuma. Or Numa, however you want to pronounce it. I've heard it said both ways. Now, the, the, the Hebrew word ruach, the Greek word pneuma, and those are transliterations, of course. They're not actually in Greek and Hebrew. But um, it, it, it's a word that can mean breath or wind or spirit. And as we look at different translations of the Bible, you'll see that in different passages of the Bible, you'll have the, in the Old Testament, you'll have the word ruach translated, and it doesn't always mean Holy Spirit. You'll have the word pneuma translated, and it doesn't always mean Holy Spirit or anything, things like that. It all depends upon where it's used. Has anybody heard of the Jewish Publication Society? It, they published a, a, a translation of the scriptures called the Tanakh of the Old Testament. They actually, in their, in their, in their uh, translation of the verse we just read, it says, The earth was formless and void, and darkness covered the surface of the deep, and a wind from God was sweeping over the face of the waters. See, they don't say the Spirit. They just say a wind from God. Now, that could be for theological reasons. It could just be how they honestly want to translate the word. But we, as Christians, we can't say, well, you guys are wrong for translating it this way, because the word ruach, it means wind. But as, as Christians, we can look with New Testament eyes, and we can understand that there's something more to this word than just the bare root meaning. You, it's called the the, uh, the root fallacy. You never want to look at the just the root word of a of a word. You never want to look at the root definition because that can lead to a problem. There's always the word is always going to be used in a context. Okay, um, and there's another verse that uh, that gives kind of the dual nature of this word. Turn to Psalm 33. Sir. Well, we're flipping, I could lend some insight into the Tanakh translation. Please. So, a rabbinical friend was telling me the reason they render that as the wind of God is that Ruach carries the idea of life giving breath of God. Right. That it's his Ruach that enervates Adam from clay. And so the creation is about to happen. So, the life giving breath is coming over the universe, preparing to bring life. Right. And, and, and that's brought up, if you go to Genesis chapter 2 and you see the, the, that God breathes life into the man and stuff like that, again, that's the word ruach. And so, it's, it's, again, the word is, is a, it's a great word. It's, not, it's a word that if, I think if we just study a little bit, everybody breaks out their strongs, it breaks out their, um, 
uh, vines or whatever they want to use as they're studying. You know, you don't have to learn Hebrew. You don't have to send yourself through that torture. Um, You don't have to learn Hebrew. You don't have to learn Greek. But I mean, just having a familiarity with some of the words in Scripture can can be of great value if you're talking to somebody who doesn't believe, who might have um, a translation in their mind that they've picked up from the Internet or from somewhere, from this place or that place, that they use to throw at you uh, to try to discount what we believe. Just having a, a general understanding of simple words can sometimes do that, and it can help you out. Um, so has anybody wants to read Psalm 33? Psalm 33, 6. If not, I'll read it. I'm going to call on somebody. Actually, Lynn, would you like to read it? Thank you, honey. (laughs) By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host, by the breath of his mouth. By the breath or the ruach of his mouth. Okay? Again, so there's there's plenty of passages where the ruach of God is seen. And, And can anybody think of any others where the ruach is possibly used? already gave you one in, in Genesis chapter 2. You don't have to think too hard. Where, where is the Spirit of God used in the Old Testament? Red Sea. Red Sea. The wind of God. That's a great one. <coughs> okay? So there's, there we go. Here's a... Hey, John, I was thinking, like, what David says, like, don't take your spirit from me. Don't like, take your Holy Spirit. he's not referring to... Simply breath, right? You know what I mean. So that'd be maybe the flip side. But see, it, and what's what's funny is it actually can be trans. Don't take your breath away from me because he's he doesn't want to die, right. which is a, a legitimate translation. But we understand again that no, there's something more going on. Right. So you know, don't take your spirit from me, God. Don't don't take this thing out of me because it's it's helping me. It's it's, it's aiding me in what I'm trying to do. Um, we see the the Holy Spirit again hinted at, uh, but we believe that the Spirit is at work in the Old Testament. The Spirit also works in the New Testament. Turn to Acts 1. Now, this is one of the most mighty, powerful moves of the Spirit that we see in the New Testament. And it is also cause for a lot of confusion on a lot of people's parts that they honestly just need to be, I hate to say it, they just need to be better taught about what what the Bible actually says. Um, Let's start at verse 6. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So here... We can see that the Spirit is, is called or is, is a, a associated with the believers receiving power. Okay? I mean, that's an incredible thing. When you get the Spirit, you get power. But is it, do you get the power to walk on water, to fly around, to, you know, are you Superman that now that you have the Spirit in you? No. Go to the next chapter, and we're going to continue what the Bible says. In chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 4, it says this. When the, day had, of, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, and that's a, a great statement right there, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. Now there's an allusion to the Spirit. And it filled the, the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them tongues of, uh, as of fire, distributing themselves and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues 
as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So we can see that the many things that the Spirit is talking about, the Holy Spirit is going to give you, and we'll talk about this uh, next week, is He's just going to come inside of you, and if you are yielded to Him and available to Him, He's going to give you power to do things that you didn't know that you were able to do. The disciples began to talk in languages that they never learned. The people that they were able to understand them, and they were able to share the gospel, spread the gospel, preach the gospel. And it's an, it's an incredible thing. Uh, it is because the Spirit is, manif- is the manifest presence of God in the New Testament, it's natural for, for Paul to call the Spirit the first fruits. Uh, in Romans 8.23, it says, And not only this, but we ourselves also, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly, uh, uh, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. But the Spirit, other than just being called the first fruits, is also called a guarantee or down payment. In 2 Corinthians, uh, 2, 2 Corinthians 1.22, it says, um, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. So again, we've got the Spirit in us, and it's a pledge. It's been promised to us. If you're a Christian believer, everybody in here a Christian? Everybody say that? Yes. You've got the Spirit. You know, you don't have to to have a second work of grace. You don't have to go through anything. You don't have to beg God, plead with God to get the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you're a believer, you have the Spirit of God in your life. And 2 Corinthians 5.5 says, Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us his Spirit as a pledge. Um, we, have, we, we have to see that it is because the Spirit is the full manifestation of the presence of God, um, that we will that we will see in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, this one, I, as I was reading Grudem, I kind of pondered over this one a lot. And I'm going to see. Uh, I'd like to get y'all's thoughts on it to see what you guys think. Now, he said, uh, "We we will see that the Spirit is the full manifestation of the presence of God that we will know in the new heavens and the new earth." Now, I'm going to read the verse and then let, let's talk about this. It says. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among, among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. That's on page 635. Now, he uses that verse to say that the Spirit is going to be the, the only presence of God that we'll know in the new heavens and the new earth. Do y'all find that to be an accurate statement based upon that, that verse? I, I kind of don't. Well, I, I would say I don't, I don't know exactly what he means by that, but Christ says his presence is here through the Spirit. Right? Christ's presence is here through the Spirit. But in the new heavens and the new earth, aren't we also going to be able to see Christ? In the eternal state? In the eternal state. Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. So when we're in the new heavens and the new earth, and, and if Christ is a better, uh, a better revelation or the manifestation of, of who God is, I kind of think that Grudem might be just a little off in this statement, not completely off, because I think it's a wonderful systematic theology. I can't, have, can't find any fault with it. I couldn't write it. Um, but I think he, he might want to rethink this, or if I could ever write him or talk to him, I would just love to say, you know, did you ever think about this and that? When it comes to Christ being the full manifestation of who God is, I think he's just a little bit wrong. Yes, sir. Uh, 
I just don't think we got enough biblical evidence to make that kind of statement. To make the statement he made? Yeah. I, I, I think he's right. I think, I think he's kind of overreaching in his statement here. But, you know, I, I see where he's going. I see what he's saying. Um, but I just kind of, I, I would just have to say, you know, eh, I kind of disagree. But, it, again, if you understand what he's trying to say, I think it's cool. Yes, sir? I don't know that that's exactly what he's saying there on uh, page 635. Yes, sir. I think what he's saying is that he is the guarantee, the down payment, that we will see the full presence, the manifestation of God's presence in the new heavens and the new earth. And one of the things I had in my notes was if he's I've not, misread it, he's let not me know. denying that we will see Christ, Christ. and the Father. No, 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 no I, don't, I don't believe that. He's definitely not denying that. I don't believe that. I know he believes that. I know that, that, that Wayne Grudem believes that. But I think the way I was, I was taking the, the statement was, um, yes, he, he said, um, the spirit is the full manifestation of the presence of God. That's not the, what's the statement? Let me read it to you. I have it here in my logos. Sorry, I'm cheating. No problem. But it says, he says, the Holy Spirit is the first fruits and the guarantee yep. of the full manifestation of God's presence. Right. So he's the guarantee of the full manifestation. Of the full manifestation of God's okay, I've been misreading it. Great, I still. I just had to double check you because I, I didn't think Grudem would make that kind of that kind of statement. All encompassing. Because that that if if I, if you're taking it as I read it, you know. Say it again. I'm sorry. I say it's just good to get that straight because, like you said, I mean, we will see Christ. We will see right God in in you know in, in some visible form. We will stand before the. The throne, exactly. We will see him and the Lamb. It says. As I was as I was studying this, I was just like going, "Wow, that seems kind of crazy." If I'm reading it and understanding it, and I'm glad, you know, I'm glad that that I've misread it, and that that can happen every once in a while. You can misread something, and and that's good to know, you know. And I'll and I'll go back and make sure because he's got he's got a lot of ellipses and parentheses in this little section, so I might have misread it and misunderstood it. I'm glad to know that uh, Pastor Miller has brought out something that I can look at and, and go back and readjust what I said, because that's that's good. Um, uh, so here we go, and, and it, it it was even predicted in the Old Testament that the Spirit would bring blessings and renewal from God. Turn to Isaiah chapter 32. Isaiah 32, verses 14 through 19. Does anybody want to read that? I'll read. Yeah. Juan's got it. Juan, you want it? Isaiah 32, verses 14 through 19. Because the palaces shall be forsaken... The multitude of the city shall be left. The forts and towers shall be for dens forever. A joy of wild asses, a pasture of flocks. Until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness be a fruitful field, and the fruitful field be counted for a forest. Then judgment shall dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. And the work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. And my people shall dwell in a peaceable habitation, and in sure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. When it shall hail, 
coming down on the forest, and the city shall be low in a low place. In a low place. So again, here is God telling us through the prophet Isaiah that the Spirit is going to bring blessings. She's going to bring renewal that as the world is, is crooked and corrupt and bent uh, and out of shape, I like the way one of my seminary professors said it. He says the world is coiled up on itself. Um, and, I, and I really like that. He's saying, God says, I'm going to make things right. I'm going to get things back to the way that they're supposed to be. And also he says the same thing in Isaiah 44, uh, verses 1 through 3. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and, and you, uh, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on a thirsty land and the streams on, on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your off, offspring and my blessings on your descendants. That, 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 again, to me, is a wonderful passage. He's going to pour out the Spirit. At a, this was at a time in the future, uh, or at a, that the Spirit would be poured out in the future. Now, we have that time period. We have a partial fulfillment of that in the New Testament, we, that passage we read from the book of Acts. But there's going to come a time when God's just going to just, he's just going to do it all. He's going to lay out the Spirit for everyone to see. And that's going to be an incredible time. But here's the difference. The departure of the Spirit... Um, it is the departure of the Spirit that removes the blessing of God in the lives of His people. In the lives of His people, turn to Isaiah sixty-three. Even now, in, um, yes, sir. I was just thinking about what you're saying, and it's so right. And I love all these Old Testament passages, but I think Juan was reading the King James. I think so. It's not a sin, brother. Because verse, I'm just thinking because if you read, if you saw, he read in Isaiah 32, 16, mm-hmm. it says, judgment will dwell in the wilderness. Right. Which, of course, is not actually what, maybe the best translation for us, because mishpat doesn't mean, like, judgment in a negative connotation. Right. The Hebrew word is justice. So, it right. almost could confuse an English reader today, like, Wow, there'll be judgment. Like people will be judged in the world. You see what I'm saying? Right. Where he's trying to stress that the spirit, that the, that the age of the spirit will bring equity. It right. Will bring God's justice to bear. So anyway, just that's a good thing to point out. And if if some if you've got if you're reading anything other than the NASB, so I'm trying to convince people to go to the NASB. <laughs> if you if you could just let me know when know. you do that, like Tony, I appreciated it because again, the the readings in in different variations. It's not like you're going to read the. New King James or the King James or the NIV or something like that and come up with a different theology. The Bible's going to have the same message and throughout whatever you're reading. But in certain passages, you might be met, led down this way and when actually the Bible's, go, you might be led right when the Bible's actually going left. So if you could just point out that you're doing that, it, it would help so we can get to clear up the translation. No, no salvation difference across the major translations. No, no. You're going to be, you, you could be saved through any translation of the Bible. And, and that's, that's a wonderful thing. Through, any through any good translation, any good translation, <laughs> you'll have the wrong Christ if you got saved with a Watchtower Bible. That would be bad. Okay, so you have the wrong Christ. Okay. Um, even still, there are texts in the Bible that speak of a time when the Spirit would come in a greater way than ever before. The old, the Old Testament. Um, speaks of the coming of the Spirit that would produce a new covenant with his people. Now, 
this these next few passages should really get you guys just revved up. Um, Joel chapter two. Does anybody want to read it? Verses twenty eight and twenty nine. If you if you want to read a good passage of scripture, if you want to have like a, a, a good reading, this is a great passage of scripture to read. Um, let, let me get Chris to get it. Go ahead, Mister Chris. Joel two twenty eight twenty nine. Yes, sir. This is the uh, elect standard version. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. I mean, that's an incredible passage. Again, he, he, Wayne Grudem says that he's using sons and daughters here and old men and, and young men as couplets. He's just saying on all of humanity. That's what he's saying. He's saying on everybody that is, he's going to pour out his spirit on those days. Your male and female servants. It's going to come a time when the spirit is just going to be, going to be uh, active in everybody's life. And it's, that's a wonderful thing to me to know um, that we're, we're going to be around to see that. Whether we die and go to heaven as we, and we come back as, as saints that have been glorified or will be glorified, or whether we're still alive and hopefully he'll come back tomorrow and start setting this up. Because uh, then I won't have to teach the next three weeks of Sunday school. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Um, and Ezekiel 36 is another one. Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 28 says, um, For I will take. I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. Moreover, I will make... Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in a land that I will give to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. I mean, that, 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 one, that, that passage just kind of gets me going. I got goosebumps. Because again... There's going to come a time when God is going to take out just this hard-hearted heart that we've got, that we had, that just wants to sin and does the wrong thing and, and fights against God. He's going to give us a heart of flesh that pumps blood. We're going to be what we're actually supposed to be. You know, we're not going to be what uh, we've become through being descendants of Adam. We'll be who we're supposed to be. And God, is going to, and God is going to be happy about that. If you flip over one chapter, verses 13 uh, and 14 say this is a kind of a continuation Then you will know uh, that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come out of your graves, my people. I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. I mean, that's a wonderful promise from Scripture. I mean, it's a great thing to know that there's going to come a time when God is going to be doing more than he has done now. Now, uh, in what specific ways does the Spirit bring about God's blessing for believers today? Uh, This is the direction that we're going to be going in the next few weeks. We may uh, distinguish four aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit to bring the evidence of God's presence and to bless. The first thing is the Holy Spirit empowers. That's what we're going to talk about next week. 
The second thing is the Holy Spirit purifies and the Holy Spirit reveals. That's what we want to talk about the third week of the class. And then there's two things here. Um, the Holy Spirit is going to, he unifies and he also uh, gives us stronger or weaker evidence of the presence and blessing of God according to our response to him. That's going to be what we cover in the, in the last week of the class. And we will examine each of these in the, in the next few weeks that are to come. Um, finally, we must recognize that the activities of the Spirit are not to be taken for granted. Okay? They do not just happen automatically among God's people. Rather, the Holy Spirit reflects the pleasure or displeasure of God with the faith and, and obedience or unbelief and disobedience of God's people. Because of this, we, need to, to, uh, we, we have to understand that the fifth aspect, when we're looking at the stronger or weaker evidence, is going to be something that we're going to have to focus on that last week. Because that's, I think that he kind of added this as like a last topic to the four. And I think it's something that we're going to have to actually bring about. And I'm going to have to get a lot of counsel on from my wonderful pastor because I still haven't understood it yet. But I'm working on it. Um, one theologian said this, and it, 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 it's, uh, he's a dispensationalist, but we're going to forgive him. But I think he's right on this. He says, uh, let me pass along something I hope you will never forget. If you get involved in a ministry that glorifies itself instead of Christ, the Spirit of God is not in that ministry. If you follow a leader that is getting the glory uh, for that ministry instead of Christ, the Spirit of God isn't empowering his leadership. If you're a part of a Christian school or a mission organization or a Christian camping ministry in which someone other than Christ is being glorified, it is not being empowered by the Spirit of God. Mark it down. The Spirit glorifies Christ. And then he says, I'll go one step further. If the Holy Spirit himself is being emphasized and magnified, he isn't in it. Christ is the one, and Christ is in italic. Christ is the one who's glorified when the Spirit is at work. And I think that is, is the, the kind of the key to all of this. As we're, as we're going through systematic theology, the whole thing, as we're going through this particular topic in systematic theology, when you're alone reading your Bible, when you're having your prayer time, when you're listening to sermons, we have to keep Christ center in our thoughts. Because this is our, our Christian life, we're, we're called little Christs. It's about what Christ has done for us. And we have to understand that Christ is the one, but we're going to be empowered by God's Spirit. Does everybody understand? Is there any questions? Any comments? Yes, Mr. Chris. Um, so we don't want to become like imbalanced as far as like it's all Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. That's all we talk about. That's all we see. Um, is, is there a possibility that you can swing to the other, the first person of the Trinity, of the Father? Yes. I, I, uh, one of the things that I said, I don't think you were in here. Okay. Because like, the thing I'm thinking about is... Christ says he glorifies his Father, and right. so he's pointing to the Father. So would it, you know, how, I'm just curious what you think on that. Can we be imbalanced and glorify the Father too much? Too much. Too much? I don't think you can glorify the Father too much, but you can't glorify Christ too much. You can't glorify the Spirit too much. We have to, It's a triune God, and all of his works are done in unison. So we have to glorify God in all that we do. And whatever you do in word or deed, you know, you, you do it in Christ's name. You, you give glory to God for what, what he's doing. Salvation, regeneration, you know, sanctification. I don't think you can glorify him too much, but I think what happens is if you get out of balance, if you kind of tilt that meter one way or the other, um, it will lead to a, a kind of a, a wrong thinking as you're talking about 
who the Father is, or if you're talking about who Christ is, or even if you're talking about who the Spirit is, if you're emphasizing one over the others, uh, it will it will get out of whack. You don't ever want to uh, say in just in all your talk talk about the Spirit, talk about the Spirit, or talk about the Father. One of the things that I, I like about James White, he says, we pray Trinitarian prayers in our church, and I, and I think that's true. I think as you're thinking about as you worship the Lord, it has to be Trinitarian. Because you can't leave out any member of the Spirit or any member of the Godhead as you're talking about what God has done. So I think it, you can be imbalanced, but I, I don't think you can worship the Father too much as long as you're also worshiping the Son and you're worshiping the Spirit. Yes, ma'am. I was just going to comment how you were reading out of that kind of book about doing things like ministry and whatnot. And if it's not glorifying Christ, in other words, the power of the spirit is not working in you if it's not bringing glory to god so through believers um the holy spirit works in us and through us to bring glory to christ to god like you were saying and so if we're not then we're exalting self and so therefore the holy spirit's not working in us so it's okay to you know i just lost my train of thought um repent (laughs) <laughs> um, I, I was going off of what he was saying, and what you were saying, and I was combining the two. But never mind, I lost my thought. No problem. No problem. Does anybody else have any comments? Yes, sir. Probably like this must be the my last comment. Uh, but probably the thing maybe for us as reformed conservative theology, most of us probably good cessationists, you know, we probably do like underemphasize the spirit, or we can have that tendency because whenever we hear people talk about the spirit, we're like, whoa, 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 we're not charismatic, you know, let's calm down. I mean, that's kind of, for me personally, that's the, the initial reaction for me, you right. know, but to know that there is that healthy balance of the triune God and, and acknowledging all three. We're actually going to be talking about a little bit of that next week. Yes, I was just going to comment on that. It's funny because I was just listening to a sermon um, by Paul Washer about that, and that as believers, you know, we can't allow the charismatic or word of, word of faith movement to ruin that for us because the Holy Spirit is alive and active in us. And if we allow the abuse of it to, to ruin that for us, then we're not... Um, truly allowing the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us. And then that takes away from, but yeah, I know what you're saying. It does. It can ruin that for you because of the abuse, but we can't let that. For sure. That's why uh, one of the things that I pointed out when I, when I opened it is we don't want to be one of those people who's wildly charismatic. You know, if you turn on TV and you hear people saying, God said this, God said that, the Holy Spirit said this, the Holy Spirit said that, I think they're imbalanced. But you also don't want to be so intellectual in your brain that everything is about propositional statements and it's never there's never an experience of God. Now, I can't stand the book that Henry Blackaby wrote, Experiencing God. I think it's a terrible book. But I think he does. he's on to something when he says experiencing God. You do have, as a Christian, part of my testimony is that I've, I've experienced God. God has come into my life. I mean, I, I, my life has changed because of it. And it. But it's something that I can't tell to you, explain to you, fully make you understand but God is in here and he's he's revealed himself to me and he's changing me and that's something you know that's an experience and so there there is an experiential aspect to the Holy Spirit there's also an intellectual aspect to the Holy Spirit and I think uh, one of the things that I, I love about this church is I think that they do a good job of blending the two 
Uh, we, we do a, a, a pretty good job of blending the two. And, but it's also one of the things that I love about the, the church that I come from uh, back in Atlanta. They do a, a good job of blending the two, but in a slightly different way. And it's it's different, but it's it's blended both ways. So you can go, you can find good churches all around. But I think the vast majority of them are going to be churches where, like the last comment said, I think the men the men are up there. They're not glorifying Christ. They're not glorifying God. They're glorifying themselves, and it's about themselves. And that's that's just a problem for me. You know, a lot of Christians are in churches where this. I don't think the spirit's there because they're not worshiping God. They're talking about. Financial principles from Psalms, you know, stuff like that. That's just that just bothers me. Just bothers. Chris asked me to make sure that I got you guys out on time. Got five minutes till it's two thirty, so I'm getting you out on time. So, if there are any other questions, any comments, uh, is there any anything else? Anybody? Yes, sir. I wonder kind of the whole balance issue. I'll just keep this very brief, but I think it's very easy for us uh, to dwell on our grace and and. When we start putting things out of balance, we forget the only reason we can approach the Father, as Romans teaches us, God hates and despises sinners, but because of Christ, we can approach the Father. So if we're out of balance toward the Father, we're forgetting the work of Christ. We're, in essence, forgetting the very reason we can even enter into the presence of God. And then on the other side, as you were saying before, if you put the Spirit out of balance, if we let the Charismatics rob us of, of, of a joy in experiencing the Spirit... We have a very dry, propositional Christianity that is that has no, it doesn't impact our hearts. It's intellectual. Right. Amen. Amen. So. And I think with that, that will be the last word. Let's pray, and then we'll get on to our worship. Uh, Father, we thank you for allowing us to, to gather here as a group to, to have Sunday school. Lord, I thank you that um, it was a good class. Hopefully the next three classes will be wonderful. And, Lord, I appreciate all that you've done and all that you're doing and all that you will do. Lord, let us enjoy our worship as we go into service. Let us enjoy the, the scripture reading, the singing, the, the preaching, and the fellowship. Father, we look forward to all that you're going to do in our lives, and we just thank you for being who you are. We ask all of these blessings in Christ Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.